Hello everyone, hope you guys are doing well. Today on the podcast I have a very special guest, his name is Mark Purdy and he is a Managing Director and Chief Economist at Accenture Research. Mark's research examines issues at the intersection of macroeconomics and business, such as globalization, international competitiveness, economic growth and jobs. His recent projects have focused on Chinese productivity, emerging markets geographic strategy, inclusive economic growth and the economic impact of new technologies such as Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. Obviously the latter one is of utmost importance and interest to us and I would strongly urge you to check out three of the reports that Mark has been involved in and they're called uh, Future of Growth, The Growth Game Changer and Business Futures and they are all I believe on Accenture website and you could easily access them by way of googling. Now Mark and I connected at the Warwick Economics Summit last year and he was one of the panelists and I was an alumni coming back to my university for the summit and then I really enjoyed his panel and afterwards we connected and I got his contacts and finally we made this episode happen. In the podcast we talk about future of jobs, we talk about China versus US in terms of dominance in artificial intelligence field and we discuss what current graduates can do to stand out from the crowd and to perform well and fulfill their potential in the ever-changing AI-based economy. Now, please enjoy today's episode with Mark Purdy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today, I have Mark Purdy with me. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Max. How are you? Very good. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the call. It's been quite long-awaited for me. We've been trying to synchronize our calendars for a while now after the economic summit and now we're finally here. I'm super excited. Um, actually, now that I started talking about it, could you speak about your experience at, at Warwick and then sort of how we how we met and then how we decided to do this? Uh, yes. Um, so Max and I um, met uh, a couple of months ago at the Warwick uh, Economic Summit, uh, which I believe is the, the biggest uh, student-run uh, economic summit uh, in in the world. Um, I think there were probably about four four or five hundred people uh, present at at the summit. It was being streamed uh, live on on Facebook. Um, there was a whole series of uh, different speakers uh, and presentations over the course of uh, three days. Um, and I was uh, part of a panel discussion on the future of work, uh, where we talked a, a, about a lot of the kind of issues affecting work and jobs, including you know demographics, uh, technology, uh, and automation. Um, and it was a very interesting discussion. I think we covered a, a lot of ground. Um, mm. I was also tremendously impressed, by the way, with with the the whole organisation of the summit and. Uh, the Warwick uh, Economics uh, Society, and and just how the whole event had been run. So it was it was it was a it was a great experience for me. Yeah, it's quite for those who listen. Warwick is this um, university in the UK, in a beautiful land of Warwickshire and Coventry, and it hosts yeah quite a big event as Mark was saying. And I'm an alumni myself, um, so I came down. Yeah, it was it was it was it was really well organized for the student run event and. You know, props to the guys. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool, and it attracts very high-profile guests such as Mark, and also your speech was very great. And then the time we got to spend afterwards uh, with some of the other guys was pretty cool. Um, 
So you are, I'm really bad with accents, but you are Irish, right? Uh, well, that's uh, that's correct. I'm originally from uh, Dublin, Ireland. Um, I moved over to the UK about 22 uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've been living in London. That's exactly uh, my for, age. For, for the past sort of two, 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 two decades. Um, and I have uh, family here and, and, you know, this is where I work. Um, although my role at Accenture is very much a global role, um, mm-hmm. you know, I work on projects with a, uh, with a global scope. Uh, I work with people uh, and colleagues from, from, from all over the world. And I, I frequently uh, travel um, to many parts of the world to give you know speeches and, and do panel discussions and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. What was your best um, event that you had a chance to visit recently, apart from Warwick? Apart from Warwick, um, I, um, I went to, uh, I spoke at a very interesting uh, event in Cartagena in Colombia, uh, mm-hmm. last uh, August, uh, which had been organized by the Colombian uh, telecoms uh, regulator. And they were beginning to look at the impact of AI on, on mm-hmm. Colombia, the kind of economic and, and social impact, and also its implications for business. So I had an opportunity to talk about uh, our research on why AI is the future of economic growth. Um, but I also chaired a panel discussion uh, where we had panelists from a number of different organizations. For example, we, we had someone from, uh, from, from, from Google uh, there. Uh, we had we had someone from uh, from from Facebook, mm-hmm. um, and so we were able to kind of really explore all of these issues around the future impact of AI, not just the economic impact, but you know what impact is it having on society? Uh, what what impact could it potentially have on jobs and the nature of work? Um, you know what are what are some of the issues around kind of ethics and privacy and 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 how do we respond to those? So it was a very sort of stimulating mm-hmm. event in in a great city uh, in a country to which I I, mm-hmm. I had never been before. Yeah, I've never been either, but sounds sounds really cool. Um, before, as I understand, so that you are now very much interested in uh, macroeconomics, business, and technology, and sort of where those three come together with focus on jobs and what technology is going to do to jobs and the way we sort of create value, right? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, as an economist, um, and I've worked in, in, in various uh, different places over the years, I actually started out as a microeconomist. Could you, um, could you just for a brief second talk about your motivations to study economics? And I know that you went to Trinity College Dublin because that's what your LinkedIn says, uh, and you went on to do masters in economics uh, in at the same university, right? So, yeah. what motivated you to do economics in the first place, and how was your experience of studying it at the university, and then, you know, working as an economist? Um, yes. Um, why, why did I decide to study economics? Well, I initially uh, began studying economics in in high school, mm-hmm. in secondary school in in Dublin. Um, and you know, I think it's fair to say, as you know, whatever a sixteen year old, I didn't initially have a very good idea of what economics was. Uh-huh. Um, I probably had a few that there was something to do with financial markets. Um, but as I began to study it, I, you know, 
even at that stage, I, I got an inkling that it's it's a very powerful way of understanding, you know, what what's going on in the world and how people make decisions, uh, what incentivizes people. And you know, I began to realize that you could pretty much apply economics to any kind of sphere of life uh, and develop quite a powerful framework uh, for, for understanding that. You know, so why do we have unemployment? Uh, mm-hmm. Why is inflation a problem? Um, you know, why do some firms succeed and others go out of uh, business? You know, what, why are some people poor and, and, and some people rich? And, you know, what, what should we do with that, about that? Mm-hmm. Um, I also began to sort of understand as you know as I progressed to university and studied it in more depth um, that you know the potentially there are a lot of problems with with markets you know the market can be very very effective at solving a lot of societal problems but there are a lot of things they can't solve uh, there are a lot of market imperfections uh, and so often you need governments to intervene or, or you, you need alternative uh, solutions. Um, so that kind of helped me to get a good grasp of public policy uh, and understand how governments and policies could actually improve outcomes uh, for, for individuals. So, you know, I think that a lot of people who haven't studied economics often don't really know what it's uh, about. Um, they, they probably have a view that it's very much around finance and the stock exchange and, and so on. And it, it, it really isn't. It's really about what motivates and drives human behavior. Um, and, and ultimately, it's about improving um, the welfare of, of, of individuals, you know, understanding how, mm-hmm. do, how do we make people better off? How do we improve living standards? And, you know, what are some of the good ways to do that and, and, and some of the wrong ways to do that? Yes. Um, so that's why I've, I've you, know, typically, you know, I've found it to be a very useful uh, kind of prism to, to kind of apply to, to, to kind of any problem of, every, of every day, everyday life. It's not, you know, of course, it's not the only um, framework. You know, there, there are many others. You know, there's obviously political science perspectives and sociological perspectives and, 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 and so on. But economics is, is one such uh, framework, and, and I found it to be a very powerful one. Mm-hmm. And then when does the interest in technology come in? Did you feel like it was kind of inevitable that because it was having such a great impact on economy and growth or you just became tacky and tech savvy and then that tripled over into your interest in economics how did that intersection came about well the the interest in technology uh, has come relatively late in in in, in my career um, i mean i've worked on quite a lot of different economic research topics over the years in you know in different organizations and even in Accenture I've worked on on a lot of different topics but one of the areas um, that I was very interested in was competitiveness uh, and and what drives economic growth in in economies Uh, you know and there's a you know there's quite a lot of economic literature out there and a lot of you know kind of models around what drives growth in in economies um, but I, you know, I began to think about well, what what could be the impact of technology, and you know, there, there seemed to be 
uh, a debate kind of out there around, well, you know, technology potentially is a very powerful driver of economic growth, um, but yet at the same time, um, economic growth for the last few years in many parts of the world has been quite weak, uh, and we have uh, pretty poor productivity growth compared with a few years ago. So mm -hmm. I began to think a lot more about how technology interacts with the economy, and you know why is it that technology in some cases seems to you know drive accelerated growth, and in other cases it seems to have less of a uh, less of an impact so that initially got me into thinking uh, along a number of areas one is um, you know our economies which are more digitized uh, do they tend to have higher economic growth uh, that mm -hmm. was what the first project that I worked on and um, we found yes uh, in general um, economies which um, are, are, are more digital uh, do tend to have faster economic growth rates um, then secondly, I began to look at the Internet of Things, uh, which again, for, for your listeners who are not familiar, the Internet of Things is really about a world of very smart, connected objects. So if you think about you know, your, your fridge uh, being able to talk to your uh, mobile phone, <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and you know tell you when you know when you're out of milk and and kind of you know actually making the order <laughs> uh for milk uh from 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 the supermarkets i love how i love how technology is so powerful usually sort of to give an example of one you would pick milk or beer sort of the necessities of our society to give an example of what internet of things is going to do yeah exactly i mean every every potentially sort of every object can be can can be made smart you know your car yeah. um the you know the 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 windows in 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 your home you know can be made sensitive to the weather um you, you know your kind of toothbrush you know kind of the the, the watch on 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 your hands um and you get to a stage where potentially those objects can talk to each other but also the you know all of the data um, that those smart objects generate can be collated and then analyzed and and sort of fed back to the object so they they actually work uh, more efficiently in in the future so you know thinking about um, say um, you know factories which which use a, you know a, a type of machinery or, or a common component uh, you can aggregate all of that data from the different components in the different machines in different factories um, and the, the manufacturers can then analyze that uh, they can identify faults or defects in real time before they happen and they can do predictive maintenance so you don't have a whole kind of 24 hours of downtime while you try and uh, fix the problem mm -hmm. so that that was the the initial area that i began to look at the internet of things and um, I produced a report a few years ago looking at the economic impact of, of, of the Internet of Things. So it's sometimes called the Industrial Internet uh, as well. Yes. And again, we, we found that it could potentially be a very powerful driver of economic growth. Um, but the qualification was that it depended a lot on the kind of the economic and industrial kind of setup of, of the particular country. Um, you know, some that's, countries. That, that's the absorptive yeah. capacity, right, that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's it. You know, it partly depends on 
the industrial structure of, uh -huh. of a country. So, you know, obviously, if, you, if, if you're talking about Germany, which has a big uh, manufacturing sector, advanced manufacturing sector, and then you bring in the idea of all these kind of smart objects that you can attach to, you know, machines and, you know, have kind of sensors on, on the different machines and analyze all of that data, then, you know, the productivity uh, premium is, is potentially huge um, because you're, make, you're taking an already advanced sector and making it even more, more productive. Um, but it also depends to some extent on what we call um, the national absorptive capacity. This was a, a kind of a measure of how well different economies can actually take and diffuse a new technology um, throughout their economy. Um, mm -hmm. And again, we, we had we had, you know done some research um, where we looked at previous um, you know what are called general purpose technologies um, in in the past. So, for example, electricity or uh, the motor car, the internal combustion engine, mm -hmm. um, or, or or the internet. And and what we typically found was that it it wasn't necessarily the introduction of the new technology that made the biggest difference. Um, it, it was actually how quickly different countries were able to adopt their their organizations and institutions mm -hmm. and consumers around the new technology. So to give, give you a classic example, when electricity began to be introduced, I guess, at the end of the, the, the 19th um, century, you know, most developed economies uh, had access to that technology. The UK and, and the US had access. The UK, sorry, the US actually went uh, further ahead much more quickly. And, and one of the reasons was that the, the US was still in the process of building out a lot of factories. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it was still expanding. So it was able to design um, you know, new um, new factories with uh, with electricity in mind, uh, mm -hmm. and so you get things like the assembly line. You know, where where, where you know the product actually the, moves around the different kind of workstations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, rather than the kind of static workstations that you, that you had in the past. Um, so the extent to which firms and consumers and the kind of the institutions of the society are adaptable to the new technology uh, and are able to diffuse it across the wider economy tends to be the key uh, the determinant of, 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 of how fast the, the new technology will have an economic impact. Um, so we developed the national this uh, index we call the national absorptive capacity, and we we kind of measured that for about I guess thirty five different economies across the world, um, and and that has actually proved to be quite an important part of a lot of the kind of the modelling that we, we 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 do around technology in terms of understanding its its wider economic impact. So that if you if you then take this example of you know how well a country is prepared with its institution and other kinds of environment to kind of harness the power of technologies. Would you say that in AI's case, there are two different ways where, you know, big players are doing it on a national level. US is kind of leading the way in terms of leaving into the private companies, whereas China is having very much, you know, centralized top-down policy in terms of, you know, we're going to dominate AI and, you know, we're going to beat everyone in this domain 
do you think that those two countries are now kind of paving the way for everyone else? And what do you think about those two different approaches to it? Well, uh, I, you know, I think there, there's room for for both models. Um, mm-hmm. You know, both models have their pros and cons, uh, I, I would say. Uh, I mean, the advantage of the, the kind of the US system, um, which, you know, one might typify as a kind of a free market system, although, of course, there's a huge element of kind of government, yeah. you know, involvement in in kind of research and uh, the kind of technology sector and the, and, and kind of the industrial sector. Um, it, you know, it, it, it works for the US because that, that is an area where you have a, lot, a huge amount of technology expertise. You have, you know, a lot of the most kind of dynamic companies in the world. You have a lot of the talent, of you know, you have venture capital, uh, you have a really good sort of mix of of ingredients, and you know that 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 has worked for the U.S. and the U.S. typically comes out, you know, in the top kind of five of uh, you know countries around the world in terms of their um, in terms of their positioning, uh, you know, around technology diffusion. Um, when you look at uh, China and maybe developed economies, well, you know, often they have to pursue a different approach because, you know, they don't have the same um, institutional setup. They, they may not necessarily have ready-made access um, to, to skills. Uh, they may not have the clusters of, of, of venture capital. Um, so you often see uh, governments becoming more directly involved and kind of, to a certain extent, kind of directing, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the areas uh, for, for, for investments. Also, in many cases, um, you know, particularly for developing economies, they also have big kind of social kind of needs as well. So, so often governments are trying to kind of ally technological progress with with sort of economic progress uh, and, and and kind of social progress you know meeting social needs you know whether it's kind of healthcare or the environment as well so I think different models work in in uh, in 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 different situations um, I think the problem is sometimes um, governments maybe rely too much on on say a free market model, without kind of recognizing that uh, you know sometimes the free market model may not deliver uh, as as much kind of early investment as as might be needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that um, on the developing countries point, because in your new paper, Future of Growth, I mean relatively new, uh, you I believe the sample size or the countries you're looking into is developed economies, right? Uh, well, yes, that, that's true. So um, the initial paper, we looked at 12 uh, developed economies mm-hmm. uh, acro- across the world. Um, but we have since extended the analyst, analysis to an additional 18 countries. Uh-huh. Then did you see uh, the difference yeah. in terms of the impact? Because you, I think you've done a, a really great job in terms of splitting the effects that AI does. And I think it's one of the best features of the paper of splitting it into intelligent automation, um, capital and labor augmentation and innovation diffusion, because that kind of sets the tone of what, you know, different domains where AI is, AI is impactful. Uh, 
which domain would you th would you say um, had the most you know difference in terms of going from a developed country to developing? Which which part of that AI equation was affected the most? Yeah, well, it 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 really did depends a lot on mm -hmm. on the country, and you know, I, I, you know, as you say, the, one of the advantages of the the modeling that we did. Are one of the unique features of the modeling that we did looking at the economic impact of AI is that we were able to break it down into the different kind of channels uh, or ways in which AI could affect growth. So, you know, there was the kind of the automation uh, effect, which is essentially where AI uh, substitutes for, for labor. Um, but there was also a big augmentation effect. So where AI you know, robotics or machine learning is used to complement labor and make it more productive. Um, and there was also an innovation effect where you get kind of uh, spillovers, innovation spillovers from AI uh, across uh, the wider economy. Um, I guess I would say if, if there was any sort of pattern with between developed and developing, I think mm -hmm. for a lot of the... Um, Develop developing uh, economies that the um, probably the, the substitution effect, the kind of the the automation effect, mm -hmm. was was sometimes potentially a bit higher, and that, and that partly reflected occasionally the the industrial structure, the occupational structure of those economies, in that you tended to have a higher proportion. Of, of those occupations that were more susceptible uh, to, to, to automation. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, vary, it varies quite a lot because the, the other sort of issue that uh, developing economies face is often around productivity. So we did see the, the augmentation effect as well. But, but potentially, as I say, uh, in some in some cases, the the automation effect was was bigger for developing economies, and that was simply because of their particular industrial structure, um, the fact that they might have more, say, basic manufacturing, uh, they might have more labor in in those occupations that are that are easier to automate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then, would you say that for some of those developing countries? Kind of focusing quite heavily on AI and this kind of exponential growth is the way to you know very quickly catch up with the developed countries because there's quite a quite a bit of potential there of kind of leapfrogging the technology sort of what Africa did with the cable internet of jumping straight on sort of the newest thing and skipping some of the stuff that they never quite adopted on time. Yes, yeah, so I think there 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 are huge leapfrogging. Uh, or op opportunities. Um, I think that different economies, they have to think about AI in terms of uh, their industrial uh, structure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and they have to do it in a way that is sort of consistent with their labor force. So for example, if you're a developing economy and let's say you have a lot of unemployment and you have a very young labor force, uh, for example, in the Middle East, and, and actually we're looking at the Middle East at the moment, then you want to use AI in a way that is actually going to be much more around augmenting the skills of the workforce 
uh, mm-hmm. and, and increasing productivity. You, you don't necessarily, you may want a bit of intelligent automation, um, but you also want a huge amount of the augmentation and, and the innovation uh, effect. So thinking about the different types of AI, thinking how, about how it sort of fits with your industrial structure and where you want to go in the future, and, and also thinking about your, your, your kind of social needs, um, you, you know, if you know if you if if you've got a very young workforce, if you know you're going to have to provide a lot of jobs, then you you want the kind of AI that's going to really have the biggest impact in terms of job creation. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Middle East is actually quite active in this this whole AI field with the Sophia, the uh, first citizenship that Saudi Arabia gave, and in Dubai there is a bunch of forums on AI. So. Very interesting. Um, I know that we are under time constraints, so before you shoot off, um, if I could ask you one practical advice. Mm. So if we just could take a you know a very small social layer of uh, quite educated university graduates, right? Whatever you know a person might have done, whether it's economics or engineering or any one of the degrees, and uh, now they're looking at the you know potential career path that is in front of them. And there is this whole AI disruption fear mongering going on in the media of how AI is going to take all of our jobs and then it will just end up being pretty much unemployed for the rest of our lives unless uh, UBI comes along. Uh, what would you? What kind of advice would you? Should we just be looking at any career path and then critically analyzing what is technology going to do to this path and how can I kind of take an edge over competition in that field not to be disrupted? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would I would take a step back a bit, um, and I think it's important to to think about the different types of jobs um, that we're going to have in in the future, the different types of work. Um, so you know, we, we've been talking about you know, if you think about a spectrum, so uh, you know, at, at one extreme, we'll have a you know a lot of human only jobs as as we do today and and typically these would be the, the the kind of jobs that involve a lot of creativity thinking applying common sense uh kind of empathy communication um you know uh, the, the social kind of interaction um you know, working uh, with with people, working with older people, for example. You know, these are the, the kind of kinds of jobs that it's very difficult to imagine mm-hmm. robots or algorithms or machines doing at any any stage in the future, precisely because they're non routine ty- type jobs. They're very context dependent. Mm-hmm. At the, at the other extreme, we will have, I think, some uh, areas where there'll be a lot of automation. Um, uh, you know where we see automation. You mean kind of sorry. You mean complete sort of replacement, right? Well, if not complete, but 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 a significant amount of Uh of 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 displacement. Um, Thinking about, for example, um, uh, a lot of jobs in transport. For for example, yeah. You know, with the with the advent of of self driving cars, Um, but but even kind of more. Analytical jobs, um, you know, we, we already see that, um, for example, M- MRI scans, um, ca- you know, can can actually be analysed by by algorithms with a, with you know a very high success rate, 
Uh, although interestingly, when you have the algorithm and the human, the success rate is, is even higher. Yeah. Um, so you know, but there will there will be there will be some areas where there'll be you know they'll become if not machine only, but but with a very high proportion of 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 um, displacement, and then I think we're going to have a fast swathe of jobs in the middle. Uh, we call this the missing middle, mm-hmm. where it's really what, about if, if you have to, if you had to put yeah. a percentage on it. What would you think? It, it's really, really difficult, and I'd be, I'd, I'd be very hard pressed to put, okay. put the, uh, but you know, I, I, you know, I would say, you know, think about spectrum, and you know, you've got, I think, a, a pretty, probably a pretty small proportion of jobs that are fully displaced, fully automated. Uh-huh. You'll have a big swathe um, that will be machines and humans working together in different ways and in different combinations and then you'll have a you know pretty sizable chunk of of still human only jobs but but the 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 point is that if you're thinking about what what kind of career path to follow what kind of skills you need in the future you you need to be kind of thinking very much around a the kind of human only skills and then b how how you would work with machines um, so think about what you know. What makes you uniquely human? You know, in, in any job, what, what what is it that you can bring that you know a machine can't do? You know, is that mm-hmm. kind of creativity, the ability to improvise, uh, you know, the, the ability to come up, come up with out of the box um, solutions? Um, you know, the ability to take the latest technology to you know to to take algorithms and, and actually work with them. Um, so that's what, you know, I think mm-hmm. younger people, particularly people who maybe are in college and thinking about the future, you know, it's not just about knowledge. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's not just about doing routine kind of work. It, it's about that ability to adapt and, and, and be creative. You know, I think everyone will have to change mm-hmm. uh, over time. There's, you know, I know it's a sort of a cliche, but there is no such thing really as, you know, one occupation for, 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 for life because it's always, going to, it's always mm-hmm. going to change. But if you think about what you can uniquely bring uh, and that is unlikely to be displaced by a machine, but, but mm-hmm. perhaps enhanced by a machine, then, then you'll be in a good position uh, and always be prepared to keep learning. You know, because the, like the the fallacy that we have a little bit, and people still have, is that you know you go to school, you go to university, yeah. Yeah. You, you study it, you're then an engineer or a computer scientist or whatever, you've done it, and then you're working. It's like, it just doesn't work like that uh, anymore. People need to continually keep their skills uh, fresh, continually learn. Uh, and, and, and just be adaptable, you know. Just just be, you know, willing to to learn new skills and and adapt as you go along. I mean, I would say that adaptability and creativity are, are really, you know, the, the the most prized skills in the workforce now because uh-huh. they're hugely important to organisations, and they're incredibly hard to replicate. And then, would you say then it's the, you know, because 
I feel that either school or universities are not really teaching, you know, there is no subject called empathy where they would teach you empathy or creativity as a standalone subject. Then would you think um, that it's more on the side of the companies that employ you to kind of train you for those skills that they need? Or is it just kind of self-learning and you're on your own to somehow become creative and start well, thinking outside of the box? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. And it, we we don't quite know Um in a, in a perfect in a perfect world in the perfect world we don't we don't quite know, yeah the problem is we don't quite know how to create these skills or what you know what makes some people more creative or empathetic than 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 others i mean mm -hmm. my my sort of personal view or instinct is that we may have to do it quite indirectly that you know we need to start with things like the school curriculum and think about you know are we teaching people music are we teaching people drama uh, are we, te you know, are we teaching teaching people art? You know, because I'm not sure you can teach people to be creative directly or empathetic mm -hmm. directly, um, but you can expose them to the disciplines that actually encourage those sort of traits in, in, in later life. You know, so even if they do end up becoming an, an engineer or computer scientist, they, they've actually been kind of exposed to creative impulses. They, they know what it's like to be creative. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't have a hard and fast answer, but I sus suspect that that may be, may be part of it. And, and so, you know, I think that calls for uh, a much more kind of varied uh, curriculum. Um, you know, it's, you know, people talk a lot about STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I mean, I think definitely STEM is going to continue to be important, but it's not mm -hmm. all just about STEM. It's also about the kind of social skills uh, as well. And, and it's about the arts. Um, and, you know, it's not just about having more arts graduates, but it's actually having people who've been, you know, exposed to different influences uh, and who are bringing creativity to, to the role, you know, regardless of whether they're a computer scientist or an engineer, any role, any job, you, you can have creativity. I mean, the idea sometimes is that we think, you know, there are certain roles that are more creative than others. You know, the, we talk about the kind of the, the artistic or the creative occupations, but you can be creative as an economist <laughs> or as a political scientist or an engineer. But we need to understand how to inculcate those skills in people. And personally, I think it, it really does start in, 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 in the schools, in the educational curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I think if we start talking about education, that's going to be another podcast. And I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely. Aware, <laughs> another episode. I'm aware that you have to shoot off. Um, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, best of luck to you. I will link all the papers uh, for everyone to check them out. Is there anything that is coming out soon from the Accenture research that you would like to announce or anything where people should find you, you know, on your personal pages or just anything you want to bring awareness about? Sure, of course. Um, well, I would just mention um, a couple of things. Uh, one is that we, um, we have a new report out uh, that we're calling a Business Futures. Um, mm -hmm. Very beautiful, which, that one. Very, very nicely done in terms of design. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's on the website. Um, but it looks at kind of four 
kind of fu future worlds, uh, including one based on virtual reality, <laughs> which, which we're calling the imagination economy. So that's well worth looking at. If you can get it on a website, or you can you can drop me an email. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, so you know, pl please do follow me because I I often send out sort of updates, uh, you know, via social media. Cool. All right. Great. Thank you very much, and good luck for the day. Thank you very much, Max, and good to talk to you. Thank you, Charmant. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the episode. Please make sure to check out Mark Purdy, that's M-A-R-K-P-U-R-D-Y, on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want to see what I'm up to, go to maxtalksai.com or maxtalksai on Instagram. Thank you very much, and until the next one.